0: Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. An evening with Slavoj Žižek. This talk took place on the 1st of July 2011 at Cadogan Hall in London.
1: I hope this works. Thanks very much. I'm very proud to be here, but I'm proud because of one and very specific reason. I was just told that this hall was once a church and now it's a kind of a cultural home for talks, concerts. My God, this is what they were doing to churches in the late 20s and early 30s under Stalin, now like, you know, (laughs) turning them into homes of culture where they had concerts and so on. So it's nice to be here in the truly Bolshevik part of London. Okay. Let me begin with uh, ideology today. The book that I'm supposed to present or rather somehow refer to, Living in the End Times, is basically an attempt to practice again the old half-forgotten art of critique of ideology. First, through a couple of examples, I will simply try to convince you that ideology is well Kicking, Alive, and so on. Let me start with an example which may even surprise you. The two big Oscar winners of the last year. One, British one, The King's Speech, and the other one, The Black Swan. I cannot imagine, almost, a better example of ideology. Let me begin with The King's Speech. The problem of the to be king, the cause of his stuttering, if you saw the movie, is what? It's his inability to assume his symbolic function, to identify with his title. So I claim on the contrary, at the beginning of the film, The future king is quite a normal, reasonable person. He simply displays a minimum of common sense, like who can be stupid enough to say, oh my God, it's my divine right to be the king, and so on and so on. And I read a movie as a very sad tale of how to make this guy, who obviously has some intelligence, stupid enough to accept seriously that he is The king. You remember how it happens. Towards the end of the film, uh, the trainer, the Australian trainer, sits on the king's chair. The furious king asks him, how dares he to do this? And the coach replies, why not? What right do you have to sit on this chair and not me? The king shouts back, because I am a king by divine right. To which the coach just nods with... Satisfaction. I've rendered him stupid enough. Now he takes himself <laughs> seriously, and so on. It's—I uh, think—seriously that the message is very sad here. It's—you know—we are all that ta- from all sides. We are informed how we live in a crisis of authority, male patriarchal authority. Of course, the reactionary perception, or rather, conservative of the crisis. And the lesson of the movie is precisely: although you men know that to take your symbolic title, father, master, teacher, king, seriously. It's a little bit stupid, but it's your duty to accept this stupidity, to become stupid enough to play the role of authority. Now, uh, the uh, other film, The Black Swan, I claim, I hope you noticed it with Natalie Portman and so on, is even much worse. It's truly a kind of a, a anti-feminist counterpart. Uh, it, I claim, resuscitates arguably one of the most reactionary myths about femininity. While in this same masculine universe that we encounter in the king's speech, while a man, if you become stupid enough, at least can have it both. You can have your title, authority, and still have a private life, let's call it, it's an old anti-feminist myth from old fairy tales up to Kieslowski, Krzysztof Kislovsky's film Double Life of Veronique, namely this myth that a woman has to make a choice. Your natural place is to withdraw from, from public career, to do your role in the family if you choose your let's call it mission, what you really care about as a career, you will pay the price for it by death. I think these are the coordinates of the second film. So, you see, that's where we are in two popular films. Men, become stupid enough, play your authority. Women, don't play with career, you will die. (laughs) Now, uh, let me, now, uh, uh, how, now, Let's make a step further through some other examples from movies. Uh, How can we detect this ideological background in popular culture? I think that the basic rule here is to apply the concept which was elaborated by structural linguistics of so-called differentiality. It doesn't only matter what a thing is, It only also matters as its positive feature what a thing is not. It doesn't only matter what you say. It only also matters what you don't say while saying what you say, of what is only implied in saying what you say. (coughs) Of course, I hope you know that there is a dialogue, one of the best-known dialogues in Sherlock Holmes' stories. Uh, This one is from Silver Blaze dialogue, short dialogue between Detective Gregory and Holmes himself, which provides the best example of differentiality. It's a short dialogue exchange about so-called curious incident of the dog in the night time. Here is the dialogue. Is there any other point to which you wish to draw my attention, asks Detective Gregory Sherlock Holmes, to the curious incident of the dog in the night time. The dog did nothing in the night time. That was the curious incident. Uh, how does this work in ideology? Uh, there is a wonderful joke in Ernst Lubitsch's masterpiece, Ninochka. The hero visits a cafeteria and orders coffee without cream. And here is the wonderful lip- reply of the waiter. Sorry we have run out of cream, we only have milk. Can I then bring you coffee without milk? (laughs) I think it's absolutely a correct answer. It's not the same thing, coffee without cream or coffee without milk. What you don't get, it's part of the identity of what you do get. In what sense? Because uh, if you bring this logic to its extreme, you can also see how a double negation, when you, don't have just, when you do not have, in this case, coffee without cream or milk, the result is not zero, but what? Another, my last example from popular culture, uh, from, I think it's from early 90s, you remember the movie with Ewan McGregor before he became a Jedi, when he was still playing uh, 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 working class uh, guys, Brust Off. The hero accompanies to her home, after their date, a young pretty woman who, at the entrance to her flat, tells him, would you like to come in for a coffee? He answers, there is a problem, I don't drink drink coffee. She retorts with a smile, no problem, I don't have any. What I like is that, you know, what you get through this double negation is probably the most not vulgar but open erotic invitation. Like, that's my point. I invite you for a coffee, then I negate coffee and the result is not zero. The result is pure uh, invitation. Why lose time with such dialectical jokes? Because I claim they allow us to grasp how ideology functions. To detect so-called ideological distortions, you should note not only what is said, but the complex interplay between what is said and what is not said. Which unsaid is implied in what is said? Do we get coffee without cream or coffee without milk? There is even a direct political equivalent to this joke about coffee without cream without milk. A friend, an old dissident from Poland told me. Uh, In a well-known joke from socialist Poland, a customer enters a store and asks, you probably don't have butter, or do you? The answer, sorry, but we are not the store which doesn't have butter. We are the store which doesn't have toilet paper. The one that doesn't have butter is across the street, and so on. Okay, but now let's take another, a little bit more elaborate example. In today's Brazil, they have carnivals, and as they like to put it, people from all classes dance together on the street, momentarily obliterating their race, class, and so on differences. But it is obviously not the same if a jobless worker delivers himself to free dance, forgetting his worries about how to feed his family, or if a rich banker lets himself go and feels good about being one united with the people. They are both dancing on the same street, but the worker is dancing, as it were, without milk, while the banker is dancing without cream. You can also imagine a brush of dialogue between United States and Europe in late 2002, when the invasion of Iraq was being prepared. The US saying to Europe, would you care to join us in the attack on Iraq to find the weapons of mass destruction? Europe critical replied, but we have no facilities to search for the weapons of mass destruction. Then Rumsfeld or some American guy answers, no problem, there are no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I mean, it was exactly the same logic. Now, uh, now, I, now let's put things in a little bit more serious way. Why do we not see what nonetheless in a way we see in ideology? How does ideology enact this suspension? Uh, I claim, I'm sorry if you know it already, but it's crucial, that there is a a wonderful apocryphal probably, anecdote from the First World War which perfectly renders our predicament today. And how? We see things that we see, but we don't see things that we also see. the anecdote about the exchange of telegrams between German and Austrian army headquarters in the middle of the First World War. The Germans from Berlin sent the message to Vienna. Here on our part of the front, the situation is serious but not catastrophic. To which, of course, as you know, the Austrians replied, here with us, the situation is catastrophic but not serious. Is this not more and more the way many of us, at least in the developed world, relate to our global predicament. We all know about the impending catastrophe, ecological, social, and so on. But we somehow cannot take it seriously. In psychoanalysis, this attitude is called a fetishist split. I know very well, but, but what? But I do not really believe it, and I think Such a split is a clear indication of the material force of ideology which makes us refuse what we see and know. We can also call this the mechanism of what Freud sometimes refers to as isolierung, isolation, where you accept a fact, but don't take it, don't, you do not what you abstractly know, you do not really, how I put it, at a symbolic or affective level, you do not really integrate it. You just rationally deal with it as if this is the case, but again, you somehow suspend its, let's call it symbolic efficiency. This again, I claim, is how ideology more and more functions today. Ideology is not in, in what you know or you don't know. You can know quite a lot of things. Ideology is, resides in this underlying selection where some things, although you know them, you behave, act as if you don't know them. Uh, let me uh, improvise a little bit here because I think this ideological mechanism is crucial. Uh, This is what I call the fetishist functioning of ideology. The old traditional functioning of ideology was more symptomatic, you know, symptom, like return of the repressed. You base your life on a lie, you repress, ignore some traumatic truth, but as we say it, whatever you do, the repressed will somehow return in one or another symptomatic form. Just to give you a stupid everyday example, the proverbial adolescent who is traumatized by sex and in order to, in order to forget about it, takes refuge in physics and mathematics. But then you know, sooner or later, he tries to resolve a, a task like how much energy is released when two bodies hit hit, hit each other, and so on, and it's there. But uh, much more interesting, I claim, is the fetishist functioning, which, again, is operative today, where you don't deny anything. You just, through a fetish, enact a distance of not really accepting it, not really taking it seriously, Incidentally, as I developed also in this last book, Living in the End Times, this I think explains why and how, although we, most of us at least, probably not only believe scientists, and in this sense know very well that the situation is potentially uh, catastrophic, but like really are convinced that this is the case, but nonetheless are not ready to do anything. Again, although we know there are threats of catastrophes, we cannot bring ourselves to to act upon it, to do it. Here, fetish enters. What is fetish? I will repeat an old story of mine, which is very tragic. It happened to a friend of mine who was married and his wife died. Young, beautiful wife, the usual story, you know, she went to a doctor, uh, breast cancer in two months, she was dead. What surprised us, his friends, is that this same lady, sorry, this same guy, after the wife died, was absolutely ready all the time to talk about the most painful moments of the wife dying. You know, we didn't have to play any of these games, oh, don't mention this in front of him, it will traumatize him. No, he was ready to talk about everything. So we doubted, my God, we started to raise questions. What's going on with this guy? Like, is, did he love his wife at all? Is he a kind of a cruel, cynical subject or what? Then we learned the secret. Every time that he was talking about his dead wife and the most painful moments of her death he was playing with a hamster in his hands and the hamster was obviously his fetish. This was also uh, the preferred pet animal of his wife so in a way playing with the hamster meant I can talk about it but hamster was the fetish in for my wife is still alive I don't accept she is dead. Now you will say, bullshit, this is primitive pseudo-analysis, how do I know it? Unfortunately, I do know it, because this hamster died half a year later, and immediately the guy collapsed, start for a week, every second day, made a suicide attempt, and had to be immediately hospitalized. So, again, I claim that... From here you can see how interesting is, socially, ideologically, the functioning of a fetish. Fetishists are not idiots, like you have your fetish feet and see nothing else. No, fetishists can be very brutal, cynical, realistic. They pretend that they accept the life the way it is. Why, because secretly their fetish enables them to acquire a distance, not to, as we put it in traditional terms, fully emotionally assume what they rationally know. Uh, For example, my thesis is that if you look at modern top managers, especially in the United States, one of the model fetishes is uh, what I ironically call Western Buddhism, this kind of a vague spirituality, transcendental meditation whatsoever. That's their fetish. They can play all the dirty market games, but deep in themselves they think, oh, I know this is just a game of appearances, the truth is in my inner self, and so on, and so on. So again, you know, I claim that you cannot really be a fully cynical subject. People who pretend to be brutally cynical, I don't have any ideals. I know life is just a brutal struggle, and so on. I claim there always is a fetish. The question to ask them is, okay, 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 but where is your hamster? Or whatever form this this hamster has. And this hamster can also be, I don't have time to go into this direction, but nonetheless externalized. Like in the sense of you should strictly distinguish between your subjective beliefs in the sense of what you take seriously what you believe, and I I will on purpose use this very clumsy formulation, and what you objectively believe without knowing that you believe it. I claim that the basic lesson of psychoanalysis today, still actual, fully actual today, is that it's exactly the opposite one of the one usually attributed to psychoanalysis, that we just pretend to believe beneath, we are hedonists with all the dirty, obscene desires, and so on. No, on the contrary, we believe much more than we know that we believe. Like, you, you can think I'm a totally cynical person, I don't care, but in your acts, there is a belief embodied. This category, again, is absolutely crucial today today i claim i'm sorry now if i repeat a short joke which i repeated at least 20 times but it's just the pure structure of this paradox you know niels bohr quantum physics once was visited at a country in his at his country house by a friend there he had above the entrance door a horseshoe in central europe the superstitious item, signaling uh, 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 destined, that's the idea to prevent evil spirits to enter the house. And the friend asks him, why do you have this here? Are you stupid, are you superstitious? And Niels Bohr gave him a perfect answer. No, I'm not stupid, I'm a scientist. Of course, I don't believe in it. But I have it there because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. (laughs) That's ideology today. We don't believe in it, we are all cynics, but Actually, we believe in it much more than we ourselves are ready to admit that we believe. So how to, what can a theorist do here? How to deal with all this? I think uh, the first one who provided the right direction, although in a negative way, was my favorite Catholic theologist, your own, okay, not Englishman, but list he lived in London, uh, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. In his, uh, I think, The Man Who Was Thursday novel, he ironically, but nonetheless seriously, proposed to install, I quote, a special corpse of policemen, policemen who are also philosophers. Here is a quote. The work of the philosophical policeman is at once bolder and more subtle than that of the ordinary detective. The ordinary detective goes to pothouses to arrest thieves. We go to artistic tea parties to detect pessimists. The ordinary detective discovers from a diary that a crime has been committed. We discover from a book of sonnets that a crime will be committed. We have to trace the origin of those dreadful thoughts that drive men on at last to intellectual fanaticism and intellectual crime. End of quote. Now this may sound a crazy eccentric idea, but would thinkers as different as Karl Popper, Theodore Adorno and Emmanuel Levinas, would they not subscribe, all of them, to maybe a slightly changed version of this idea, where actual political crime is called totalitarianism and the philosophical crime is condensed in the notion of totality? The idea is that a straight road leads from philosophical notion of totality to political totalitarianism, or as we usually ironically put it, the line from Plato to NATO, you know, like. (laughs) And the task of philosophical police is to discover from a book of Plato's dialogues, or like Rousseau's treatise on social contract, that a political crime will be committed. The ordinary political policeman goes to secret organizations to arrest revolutionaries. The philosophical policeman goes to philosophical symposia to detect the proponents of totality. So what should we reply to this accusation? I claim it holds. We are doing this, intellectuals, just not in the way Chesterton thought. We are not destroying society. We are doing something much more uncanny. At our best, we so called critical intellectuals, we are demonstrating, displaying, rendering visible how society undermines, necessarily undermines its own basic premises. Like what is our task is to do this. You, now I'll be critical even, why not, against the 20th century communism. It is not enough for a critical intellectual to say, oh, communism was a noble idea and it was a simple contingent misapplication what they did to it in the Stalinist Soviet Union. A critical intellectual should demonstrate how the distortion of a notion, of a noble idea, its falsification, its its misinterpretation is somehow grounded in the idea itself. And if we do this with Stalinism, we should be honest enough, I claim, to do it also with today's global capitalism. No, I am not anti-capitalist in some abstract naive sense, but in the simple sense of what? For example, when you talk about today's global capitalism, I would say don't talk only about countries which function more or less, developed Western countries. Mention also countries like, for example, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which doesn't even function as a country. You have local warlords who have all exclusive contra- uh, contracts, of course, with big uh, international mostly mining companies because you know that the metals used in all our computers and so on mostly come from Congo and so on. So the point is that this country which is a nightmare, it doesn't function as a state, it has the record number of children, drugged children, turned into killing machines, etc. The point is to see the Republic of Congo not a simple deviation, oh, they are still primitive, this is not yet capitalism, but precisely as part of the totality of today's capitalism. And I used here precisely and with full awareness, as it were, the notion of totality. Because I claim that this is one of the crucial critical notions that we should rehabilitate today. Totality doesn't mean this kind of a rehabilitation of all the crimes, so that you say, but they fit into a global harmony and play their role. This is the usual accusation of Hegel. All the horrors are part of the divine plan, everything is justified. On the contrary, the Hegelian notion of totality means precisely that if you observe a phenomenon, to observe it in its totality, means that you should include also all its degenerations, symptoms, uh, antagonisms, inconsistencies, and so on and so on. Totality means, for example, that you cannot say when you talk about capitalism, oh, places like Congo or today's China, these are falsifications, this doesn't count. No, it counts. All the inconsistencies, horrors, contradictions, and so on, have have to be included into the notion. Or, to put the same point in a different way, and this other way was also wonderfully formulated by Chesterton, this time in his Orthodoxy. He demonstrates in a very nice way how critics of religion start with denouncing religion as the force of oppression which threatens human freedom. However, in fighting religion, they are compelled to forsake freedom itself, thus sacrificing precisely that which they wanted to defend. You know how, to cut a long story short, you defend a certain phenomenon, so fanatically that just to fight, to destroy what you perceive as the enemy, you are ready to sacrifice even this phenomenon itself to be a little bit vicious like some, uh, some uh, warriors on terror. They like our freedom so much that they are ready even to torture people and so on just to, just to uh, defend freedom and so on and so on. So again, I'm coming back to my initial uh, question, how can we detect this, in a dialectical analysis, this necessary inner distortions, the way things go wrong but for necessary reasons. You have a certain idea, you actualize it, it turns, more or less, up to a point maybe, but nonetheless, it turns into its opposite. I will not go now into boring uh, philosophical analysis. To conclude, I would just like to claimed that what is needed here is something which was already deployed by Kant, the German idealist, Immanuel Kant, as what he called the public use of reason, as opposed to the private use of reason. What Kant Kant means by public use of reason is not simply public talk and so on. No, for Kant, precisely state institutions like the church Law, legal system are private use of reason because they subordinate reason to some pre established goal, organize religious life, uh, the legal system, and so on. For Kant, private use, sorry, public use of reason means use of reason subtracted from the entire field of social authority and hierarchy where you can, as it were, freely. Think deploying all the consequences, and so on and so on. Why is this so interesting? Because today I claim in Europe we are witnessing a great concentrated attack on this public use of reason. It's not only that you, by you I mean here in the United Kingdom, with your reform of proposed by the Conservative government, reform of... Uh, the university studies, tuitions, and so on, that you are practicing one of the most radical versions of it. The same process goes on all around Europe. What we are witnessing is precisely an attempt to change university as a space of freedom illusory as it was, I know I took my Marxist lesson but nonetheless, uh, as the space of freedom into what? Into a socially useful factory of producing experts. What basically to simplify it, society wants now, by society of course I don't mean all the people but those in power, capital and so on, is to turn universities into factories for producing experts. A French future minister told me years ago already, I was in a debate in France, he told me, take those demonstrations years ago, you remember, in the suburbs of Paris where people were, uh, uh, the youth was burning cars in the suburbs of Paris. He told me, here we need intellectuals, we need psychologists to tell us how to control the mob, we need uh, urbanists to tell us how to restructure the suburbs so that crowds cannot gather, and so on and so on. This is what they want us to do. Is this intellectual life? No. I think this precisely, is, uh, this precisely is not what intellectuals should do and are needed doing today more than ever. A true intellectual doesn't resolve problems posed by others. The first step of intellectual work is precisely to reflect on the problem itself. What if the way we perceive a problem is already part of the problem? What if the way we spontaneously formulate a problem mystifies uh, mystifies the problem? I think that uh, this is the task of it. So, now I will say something which maybe will come at least up to a point as a a shock to you. I claim that uh, When we, and I consider myself radical leftists, think, here about conservatives claiming, "Oh, European legacy is in danger. We have to protect Judeo-Christian legacy against whomever, immigrants and so on. Instead of acting like liberals who like to feel guilty, yeah, yeah, I know European imperialism, we are guilty of all the crimes and so on and so on, and plead for some abstract multiculturalism, yes, we have to learn a lot from other cultures. I think we should return the question to them, to conservatives, in the same way as, for example, Chesterton says, you can, uh, you can criticize religion on behalf of freedom, but you endanger freedom itself. Of course, I don't agree with him here, but the point is clear. In the same way, we should say that, yes, the Judeo-Christian legacy is in crisis today, but the true threat to it are not poor Pakistani or Muslim or whatever immigrants. It's precisely the so-called defenders of Europe who effectively are a threat to it. And that should be, I think, your counterattack like here in England when you criticize this uh, uh, proposed university reforms. This is your cons- what your conservative government is now doing with universities. This is the true this is, the true, uh, this is the true threat to Europe. This is the true threat to Judeo-Christian legacy, whose most noble part, we shouldn't be ashamed of it, is precisely public use of reason and so on uh, and so on. So do you remember, I think it's from to be or not to be, that wonderful dialogue in Ernst Lubitsch, again, yes, to be or not to be, between a Polish actor who pretends to be a Nazi officer and a German Gestapo officer, I don't know what. So the Polish guy who is very narcissistic asks the general, the Gestapo guy, do you, did you hear about a great Polish actor, Józef Tura? That's himself, no? He wants to see Preso. And the guy tells him, this takes place in Poland in 42, or when? The guy tells him, yes, yes, he was doing to, he is doing to Shakespeare what we Germans are now doing to Germany, something like that, no? And like, something like this you should say, you know, to all those defenders of Judeo-Christian Europe, no? you are doing to Judeo-Christian legacy what what Hitler was doing to the Jews, or something like that, no? So again, you see my point here. Do not concede to the enemy too much. What's the underlying fact here? It is that I claim today, uh, uh, not only are we living in a strange time where, The public space of debate itself is more and more privatized, is disappearing. But where uh, the functioning of ideology itself is changing, in what sense? Uh, If in classical capitalism the two main ideological mechanisms were law, legal system, and church, or, sorry, education, rather, education, education formed you as a bourgeois subject, legal system system provided the coordinates of your freedom. Today I claim it's market, the logic of market competition, which is progressively imposing itself as the hegemonic ideology. For example, in education, the classical bourgeois school, obligatory, equal, for all citizens, is elevated above the market, is gradually being dismantled and replaced by this formula, lower costs, high efficiency, multiple forms of of private education. In the organization and legitimization of power, state is more and more presenting itself as simply a kind of a market operation, where in elections we... By we, vo- by votes, we, as it were, on the market, select the best offer, the best party to do the job. I claim that even in the domain of emotional relations, we see this, let's call it self-modification. Sorry, self-commodification. In what sense? Did you notice something strange if you... If you watch some of the recent Hollywood movies, I always think, as I already tried to demonstrate at the very beginning, that they tell quite a lot about where we stand ideologically. For example, did you see the last James Bond, Quantum of Solace? Did you notice a strange thing about this film? I know it's it's politically progressive. Basically, James Bond saves the Evo Morales regime from uh, Capitalist coup. But did you notice that there is no sex at the end? This is the first James Bond film where at the end, the couple just, Bond and the Bond girl, they embrace themselves, they're too traumatized, nothing happens. Now let's go even lower than Brown. We really cannot go lower. Did you notice that in the Da Vinci Code, uh, no sex? And I claim that's how you have to read uh, the fact that poor Jesus Christ himself has to make love. There is sex up there. To cover up the fact that there is no sex here between Robert Langdon and uh, the grand-grand-grand-granddaughter of Jesus Christ. In The Lost Symbol, I think one of the candidates for the worst novel of all times, there is absolutely not even a sexual attraction. Things are even more interesting in the last Den Brown film Angels and Demons. There, there is sex in the novel between Robert Langdon and the heroine, that Italian scientist, Vittoria Veta, but not in the film. Isn't this strange, like up till now we were saying Hollywood is adding sex to make it more commercial. Now Hollywood is deleting sex to many. Why? I claim that, and this is part of subjective self-commodification, more and more, and here I am incurably romantic, even this idea of passionate sexual attachment or, of passion or passionate love is more and more perceived as potentially dangerous. This narcissistic, solipsistic, subjective economy <coughs> is getting so strong that, sorry to repeat my old joke, in the same way that we like to get today on the market, you know, like coffee without caffeine, sausages without fat, cakes without sugar, beer without alcohol, whatever. We like love without its dangerous traumatic moment. Without what? In English and in French, we use happily the same expression, "tomber" to fall in love. And my friend Alain Badiou drew my attention to the fact that he found one publicity in a a daily newspaper in France for a certain matrimonial, matrimonial agency where they say precisely we will enable you to be in love without the fall, without falling in love. The idea is that that moment of, you know, exposing yourself, opening yourself to the danger of it, should be controlled. Now, this then is our universe today. And here I must make just a couple of concluding remarks. Here I would like to make a couple of points which are crucial. First, when I say that what is today's predominant ideology is market neoliberalism. I'm not making the same boring leftist point about fighting neoliberalism. I think that we should do apropos neoliberalism, the same thing as I proposed apropos this Judeo-Christian legacy or whatever. We should always remember that, uh, that neoliberalism is an ideology not even an economic reality. Nobody really practices it. Do United States practice neoliberalism? On the contrary, look at their economy, not only under Obama, but already under Bush. Hundreds of billions spent for state interventions and so on and so on. Neoliberalism is, I think, mainly used to economize where you can, less education and so on, or to put the pressure on third world countries, so it's not a reality. Uh, What then, but nonetheless, in this ideological closure, of course there are cracks in it. Things are happening now from Egypt to Greece and so on. But there is still a problem here. I think it's wonderful what is happening now. Again, Greece, Spain, even here a little bit, something, change is in the air. But what I'm really afraid of, what really scares me, is that, what? Recently, I read uh, uh, a kind of manifesto of uh, uh, mass movement in Spain, and it depressed me very much, of those who insist on the squares, protest, and so on. First, Not only this totally apolitical character of the protest, it's we don't care about politics, we are neither left nor right, we just want decent life, dignity, and so on and so on. My God, to be brutal, every fascist would have signed that. What worries me even more is that although these manifests are written in a way to dismantle, attack, renounce, the entire political class, they like to emphasize, we are neither left nor right, the entire political class uh, is corrupted, and so on and so on. They nonetheless don't say we, the people, will do it. It's still a demand to someone. And this, you know, this is, I claim, a dangerous situation. When you attack all the politics and nonetheless you do not say Like, oh, we the people ourselves, we shall do it. But when you still address someone, then this place of the someone can be occupied by who knows whom. So we live in hopeful times, but at the same time in very dangerous times. The problem is even more crucial here for me. Like, it's easy to... Now I will tell you something horrible if you are a a radical leftist like me. It's easy to criticize capitalism. I do it all the time. But like, do we really have, even in the vaguest outline, an alternate model to propose? Like my friends from Greece are telling me, you know, the situation is terrifying, also in a good sense. Now in Greece, the system is almost disintegrating. People may take over. I told them, okay, wonderful. And what do you do then the day after? when people take over, what will you do? Will you play just some Keynesianism? Will you nationalize industries? They tell me, oh, it's wonderful what is happening in Greece. We have egalitarianism, direct democracy. I mean, how can you translate this into a new order, into coordinates of a new order? You have, again, on the one hand, this kind of a vague self-management notices, you know, local communities, people should take care of themselves and so on, which I think is precisely a model which cannot be universalized. You have, on the other hand, some kind of abstract anti-corruption capitalism, and our media are full of anti-capitalism. But I think this is the greatest triumph of capitalist ideology, where, you know, like, you cannot open a newspaper without reading about how oh my God, this company is employing child labor, that company is polluting environment, uh, that bank is uh, cheating, whatever. Yeah, but it's always as an individual accidental distortion of the system with some greedy bad guys behind to be blamed for. This is not enough. So is the change possible at all? Uh, here, nonetheless, I would like to conclude on a little bit more upbeat note. You know, when we read about what is possible and what is not possible, the first thing to note is how, in what a strange way these two poles are disposed today. On the one hand, in the domains of, well, mostly I would say technology and private life, private pleasures, we are being constantly told by the media that practically everything is possible. You know, they say, through biogenetic mechanisms or whatever, we will be soon able to clone organs, parts of our bodies, so you need your, a new heart. You will no longer need time to wait for somebody who is like you to die in an accident, whatever. We will, it will be possible for us to become practically immortal or just think about the domain of pleasures, like, I'm not kidding, I, was, I recently met in New York a guy, a surgeon, whose specialty is to cut male penis into two. So you get two of them, so you can do it with two women at the same time, whatever. Uh, So here, everything is possible. On the other hand, when you turn to economy, almost everything is becoming impossible. You want to raise expenditure for healthcare, impossible, we will no longer be competitive, and so on and so on. So we are in this strange situation where on the one hand almost everything seems possible technologically at the level of private lives, but in the matters of social life, economic decisions, and so on, practically nothing is considered Possible And this, again, I claim, is the work of the material power force, rather, sorry, of t- ideology. And maybe, you know, it's easy to make fun of China, but maybe we are here even a little bit worse than China. Why? Uh, in mid-April 2011, the media reported that Chinese government... Uh, 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 imposed wonderful, for me wonderful in the crazy sense, new law or rule, I don't know what. It is now prohibited in China to show on TV, in movie theaters, or to make it part of the novels or comics, any stories which deal with time travel or alternate history. The idea is that such stories include frivolity into serious historical matters are too frivolous, shouldn't be allowed. Of course, we know what's the point, that they consider even fictional narratives about possible alternate realities too dangerous. But we have maybe no right to make fun of the Chinese here. They at least still have to prohibit it. What if with us, ideology is so strong that we simply consider it impossible, we don't even have to prohibited. And this, I think, is, let us be realistic, the task of, I claim, philosophers or more generally public intellectuals today. I don't think that we can really provide precise new solutions and so on, what to do with global warming, my God, what do I know what to do, what to do with economic crisis and so on. But we can maybe do something much more important we can just open up a little bit the space, this confluence of ideology, the space, just shift a little bit the coordinates of the space which tells us what is possible, what is impossible, and so on. Just for example, to do something to, to make it palpable or sensible how maybe we will not be become immortal, maybe not every one of us wants to have a double penis, but maybe we can nonetheless spend a little bit more for healthcare and education or whatsoever. Just, you know, just to, this may sound secondary, but I think it's extremely important. Just to, we cannot provide the solution, but we can, as it were, open up the space for thinking about possible solutions and so on and so on. It may sound a very easy thing to do, but I claim, again, in our ideological closure, it's maybe the most difficult thing to do. Why? Because I'm not a paranoiac. Again, great things are happening, social unrest, and so on. But nonetheless, don't underestimate the amount or how far ideology has penetrated our daily lives. For example, for me, ideology, Ideologies are not these big things, you know, fight for freedom or whatever, nobody takes that seriously. Ideology is what? To conclude with my example that I refer to all the time, ideology is going to the Starbucks coffee. Why? You know what happens when you enter it. You get all those posters there informing you, yes, our coffee is more effect, more expensive, but 1% goes to some stupid Guatemala children, 1% to save trees and so on and so on. This is ideology at its wonderful purest. In the old times, we were at least aware that we are consumers, you know. So you have to do something, help, charity, socially conscious. Starbucks has come with a wonderful ideological mechanism. Why not include into the price of the commodity the anti-consumerist solidarity, whatever aspect, so that The more you consume, the more at the same time you display social, you know, social solidarity and so on are already part of the commodity price. Here is the material force of ideology. And I'm here suspect even of green movement sometimes making things out of best intentions. Where do you have their ideology? Let me be brutally frank. I'm sorry if this line is known to some of you. Why do we really buy those half-rotten apples who cost twice more than those wonderful genetically manipulated apples? Is it really that we believe that they're substantially more healthy, better? I claim many of us do not believe it. We are too cynical. But you know, it makes us feel warm, isn't it nice, by buying an apple I'm doing something for the humanity also. I participate in participate in the great movement of helping Mother Earth and all that and all that. Here is the materiality of ideology. Here we have to win. So believe me or not, I finished. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. Ah because i didn't start it so yeah now i think it's like half an hour to pretend to that we live in democracy absolutely yes absolutely
0: um we got any questions brief questions please is gentleman there
2: yeah i'll try to be brief um I'm taking one of your suggestions, which is uh, to question the questions. No? Yeah. So since you raised the question yeah. about what shall we do, what will we do, no? um, I want to return this question to you. I want to question these questions, OK? And I want to do it in, a, in one of my favorite jokes. is Abbots and Costello. Who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. No? I don't know, you know that. No, sorry. I have, it's about like Abos Abba and Costello. Are, I know uh, who they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah but. So the, the joke is about these two guys and one is a, a baseball uh, coach and he's telling to the other, we, we have funny people in our team. You know, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. So the other replies. Ah okay, so you 're the manager, yes, so you should know the guy's name, yes, so tell me who's on first who yeah that's what i 'm asking you uh, yeah who who's on first? what's the name of the guy who's on there's on first base no 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 What is in, in second no i don't know who i don't, don't want to know no no i don't know he's on third so and he's always going on like that''s it's, it's retaken in the rain man by the way so that who is something that for one is a uh, question, for the other one is an answer. So why? Yeah. It's is turning into a name. No? Because sometimes with the language you have this. You have the, the uh, melting of a name with a concept. But by the way, that's what I want to say. Oh, no, but it's,
1: uh, wh- okay, yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So I want to return this question to you in the same problematic way. I mean, I would like you, I would like us possibly. I mean, we, yeah. all, all of us. yeah to carry on questioning this question in the same way. Is it, is it a, que- is a, is a contradiction in terms, or is it a contradiction in reality? Is a, if it's a contradiction in reality, we have to carry on with that. So is, no, I mean Hegel, now you were quoting Hegel. Yeah. Hegel, the big difference to me between Hegel and Kant and the <laughs> optimism of, Kant, of Hegel, in yeah. we refer to Kant, is that Hegel once went to meet the French army that was coming to free Vienna. Okay, he came, he went back, he wanted to see Napoleon maybe, he was one of his heroes. When he went back, his house was destroyed by fire, by the French soldier, okay? Mm -hmm. But yet again, he loved Napoleon. And the big difference is that on St. en and So Let's do it and then we'll see. So there is only one way out. And I, I think, and I think you think as well, which is to carry on putting under pressure. Ideologically, I think you're doing a wonderful, a wonderful job. Uh,
0: uh, okay.
1: For okay. This.
2: Yes. So, Thank
1: you. Thank you. I think. Yeah,
2: I'll, I'll just, just shortly, because sure. I, I love the guy. So, briefly, <laughs> briefly. Yes, yeah. Uh, so let's put them under pressure, because the more we put them under pressure, the less. Space there will be no, for no, and you are doing a wonderful job on this. So please, I
1: mean, no, carry no, 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 yeah, yeah. I may be more pessimist than you because I think precisely that in the ongoing situation I cannot now. I would have to talk for another one hour and a half to develop why. But I think that maybe for some people this is good news. For some critical intellectual who like to spend their life putting the system under pressure, but not too much so that they can go endlessly putting the system under pressure, and the more you put system under the pressure, the more you progress in academia and so on, no? Uh, uh, I would say that this is a danger. We are maybe approaching a dangerous situation where not that this is not enough in the sense that we want more, but look what's happening in Greece now for example, and don't fall into this racist trap thinking, oh, it's just Greece, those primitive lazy Greeks. It will be spreading around, I claim. I'm a, I'm a pessimist here. I think that the, the system, by system I don't mean anything paranoiac, obvious, but the system in the simple sense of this relatively benevolent Western, European, liberal, democratic, welfare state as much as we still have it, not a lot, system is slowly reaching its limits. When people tell me, but you crazy communist, you really believe things can be changed, all I'm telling them is that I'm much more, I'm not a crazy communist optimist who oh, will be a revolution, I'm much more of a pessimist. I'm claiming that the only true utop- utopia today is this old time European nostalgia utopia. If we keep silent and just go on cautiously somehow this beautiful safe Europe will survive. No, the only true utopia today is to think that somehow with maybe small accommodations things can go on the way they are going on. I'm much more of a pessimist here. First I think that everybody knows, every economist will tell you how all governments are in a panic of a new financial crash much worse than 2008. Second, ecology. My God, are we aware, and I'm not a paranoiac here, but nonetheless, are we aware what those in power, and they have the right to do, somebody has to, so it's not even a critique, are considering. What I read now, and it's just small note, but in, like standard newspapers. This is not some from some news of the world or other, these paranoiac fringe publications that, for example, big powers are now admitting that the time to fight global warming with these lower carbon uh, emissions and so on has passed. We missed that moment. And they are seriously considering so-called geoengineering, which means large-scale intervention into Global natural system, for example, spraying into the air hundreds of tons of, it can be done inexpensively, they claim, of salt water, which will then deflect, deflect the sun rays and many measures like that, which maybe we will have to do, but at the same time, you know, you never know how nature is interconnected. You do this, there can be another catastrophical uh, consequence, and so on, and so on. So what I'm saying is that, uh, is that uh, that's my first pessimistic conclusion which will push us to work. My point is not, no, things are not good enough, we need a revolution or whatever. My point is if we do nothing, we are approaching a new, it will not be the old totalitarian fascist whatever system, but a new form of authoritarianism. Here I see again the lesson of China, Singapore, and so on. Are we aware what is happening there? There was still now one good argument, I admit it, for capitalism. You had 10, 20 years of dictatorship here and there, but sooner or later, when things started to run, function again, capitalism did usually always engender a demand for democracy. I claim that with China, Singapore, with what we poetically call capitalism with Asian values, it's no longer true. We have a capitalism which is in a way even more dynamic, productive, productively destructive, has a stronger capitalist dynamic but precisely functions perfectly within the coordinates of an authoritarian political system. Things are changing, that's what I am saying. And uh, just to answer, this is beautiful, I'm so sad we don't have more time because this is of course the aspect, the question that I really like. Hegel, Jena, no, you know you know what I refer to, no? This is the famous passage when Hegel saw Napoleon riding through Jena, he said, "I." think I saw the world spirit there embodied, riding on a horse. And incidentally, that would be my Hegelian answer to your point that I may be confused or whatever, like who, 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 and so on. Incidentally, I love this. This is not a criticism. You here applied to me the same joke as it is applied. It's one of the best jokes about President Bush. That it's a long joke, but the basic point is that, you know, when the president of China was, Somebody called who? H U. No, and like uh, President Bush, when he was, asks Condoleezza Rice, "Can you tell me the name of the president of China?" And she says, "Who?" And he said, yeah, yeah, who is the president of China? And uh, it goes on endlessly, and this joke has a wonderful end. At the end, he said, listen, I don't care who is who, just bring me some Chinese rice or something like (laughs) this. But uh, the last point I want to say, you know, good news, bad news, no? You know, the type of good news we are getting today remind me more and more of... uh, One of the most depressive, that's why I love them, jokes that a Jewish friend when I was a week ago in Ramallah and Tel Aviv told me, no? That it's a wonderful medical joke which happens with good news but you will see what kind of good news, no? Uh, A guy has his wife operated and then, of course, who was seriously ill and then asks his friend, the surgeon, how did it go? And the doctor tells him, listen, There are some problems. It's okay, your wife survived and will live for 20, 30 years. But she cannot control her anal muscles, so her shit will be uh, slipping out all the time. There is some strange, like, uh, mustard-like, sleazy stuff that will be all the time sliding out of vagina, so no sex. She will no longer, be that, that. and the guy is more and more desperate. And you know how the jokes end. The doctor tells him, oh, don't worry. I was just kidding. Everything is okay. She is dead. She died and so on. I, uh, this is the g- good things we are often getting today, you know.
0: Let's have, let's have some more questions. There's a Hello. lady over there, a gentleman
3: there. Uh, hi. She's, you're, you're talking in front of... Uh, a majority bourgeois, capitalist, possibly socialist um, audience tonight, and uh, granted this is an IQ function, whilst across uh, the city there's, uh, the SW, the Socialist Workers' Party, Marxist conference is going on, which I recognise you, you've not been invited to, possibly because... I they, was. I you were? Yeah. OK. But, um, <laughs> but, but this is my point. Uh, why do the British left sects not get your theories, uh, like the SWP and the AWL or Workers' Power, and su- such? A, such like, um, what ideology is functioning there? Um, why is the left UK socialists not the left liberal capitalists got it so wrong? Okay, I'm not
1: sure I got all the background of your question like all the milk or coffee, sorry, all the milk or cream implied in it as absent. What I only want to say is that in a certain way I have, of course, a certain respect for Socialist Workers' Party and so on and so on, but nonetheless they are for me a little bit of still in love with the 20th century. I think the 20th century is over. Okay, everybody knows this, but in not just calendar sense, this means... All the big models for emancipatory movement, not only the two big official ones, that is to say, uh, Stalinist or whatever you call it state, communism and social democratic welfare state, but now comes the more tricky part. Also, the dream of the entire 20th century left. 20th century radical left Trotskyist and so on was always ready to criticize state socialism Stalinism, social democracy the dream was that finally there will be a moment we just have to be patient where workers will arise install a kind of a direct self-management democracy and so on and so on I think that dream also had to fall. 20th century is over. So I don't participate in these dreams which at their most ridiculous, not many Trotskys buy it, only some of them, takes the form of, I'm consciously offering you a caricature now, but this is the model, like, if only Lenin were to survive three, four years longer and were to make pact with Trotsky to get rid of Stalin, oh, that would have been it, and so on. I'm not saying it wouldn't make a difference, but I doubt if it would make such a great difference. I think that without renouncing great enthusiastic emancipatory moments in 20th century, social democracy, communism, and so on, I nonetheless think that in its totality that forum was a failure, that we have to as I wrote somewhere, I forgot where I, as you reminded me, write too many books, that, uh, that, uh, that that forum is over. And this is, again, my only problem with them. You know, like, whenever something happened in Eastern Europe, my Trotskyite friends tried to convince me, like, in... Serbia. No, it wasn't Milosevic who, it wasn't uh, who overthrew Milosevic. It was workers. It was only later kidnapped by nationalists or they claim solidarity in Poland. No, this was originally workers' revolution. It was only later that it was kidnapped by the church and so on and so on. They see a little bit too much the, how should I put it, revolution around the corner just then in the last moment kidnapped by the bad guys. I'm here much more, if you want, a pessimist. A pessimist in the sense that the left, let's be quite frank, does not yet have, and of course you cannot have it in detail, I'm not demanding the impossible, that you make the least exact of what to do, but okay, to be cynical, as already hinted at, I think, let's say that today, as already said, a government in Greece collapses, and then, some kind of people, committees, whatever takes over. What would they have done? What could they have done? I mean, will will they be able, sorry, in the future to do what? Play Keynesianism, nationalize, what? And this is the big problem for me in Egypt, you know, to keep up this upbeat morals. I wrote that naive text, Miracle of Tahrir Square in Guardian and so on, but let's not forget that the true struggle is going on now. How will all that great sublime upheaval, what will be its results in institutions, organization of social life, and so on? These sublime moments are cheap for me. They're beautiful, you cry, how beautiful. All All life was brought to a stop, millions in solidarity. What interests me much more is the day after. And here, I think, the left, does not yet have, not even a general idea. It, you just hear this, like, either it's poor Keynesianism or it's some kind of a vague local self-organization communities or whatever. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I am not aware of any, even at the very general level, viable model. And that's, if you want to me, that's my problem with Socialist Workers' Party, they act as if they know what to do. I don't know, and I don't think they really know.
0: Thank you. There was a gentleman over there. Um, lady. My question... Oh, sorry. Um, My question is sort of in three parts. Um, I was really intrigued by the fact that you refer a lot to the ideology and, and the fact that um, people are really sort of taken in by a particular ideology. Um, and I was thinking about your example about Starbucks and thinking, well, yeah. isn't it the case that people know that what they're doing is buying a coffee that will then, in some sort of uh, self-serving way, make them feel better about themselves? So I kind of wonder what you mean by ideology if it isn't in the Marxist sense of being um, some sort of smokescreen. if yeah. we know why we're buying something and then I wonder if that in itself is more why it's ideology and not discourse uh, that you're referring to and finally I wonder um, whether there is anywhere we can move beyond ideology because you, uh, you refer to yourself as a pessimist but I wonder if ideology is in some sense is the villain of the piece then what what can we get to after it uh, a very
1: nice question but let me first ask you uh, sorry, no, uh, just clarify something. Uh, I think this precisely was my point that, and this is how so-called cynical reason functioned here, although he is uh, definitely anti-communist conservative, I respect Peter Sloterdijk, the German guy who already 30 years ago now, I think, in his first big book, Critique of Cynical Reason, proposed this formula turning around Marxist formula uh, they don't know what they are doing, it, but they are doing it. And Sloterdijk's formula was, they know very well what they are doing, but nonetheless, they are doing it. Like, uh, you know, it's no longer this kind of, a, in naive sense, false consciousness in the sense of, you don't know what you are doing. It's more a mystery of following something although you know it's false. Like, it's a lie, but nonetheless, you act as if it's the truth. This is the mystery today. This is why I think I mentioned before all those paradoxes of objectified belief. Like, you don't believe, but you follow a belief uh, materialized in your social practical activity. And I claim Marx knew it. I've endlessly written about it, but nonetheless I think this is the still eternal actuality of Marx's notion of commodity fetishism. Read capital carefully what Marx says there. He doesn't say we treat a commodity as a magical object, but in reality commodity is just, I don't know, a knot, part of a network of social relations and so on. No. The For Marx, illusion is not in what we think. We can be realists. No no capitalist is as stupid as to think, oh, commodity is something magical or whatever. Illusion is not in what we think. Illusion is in what we are doing. You may think you know what it is and you can really know what it is Let me give you a simple example of this vague analogy, very vague, but nonetheless with psychoanalysis. It's not even psychoanalysis, just naive notion of unconscious attitudes. If you are an adolescent, you may think your father is an idiot, and probably 99.999, like the Stalinist elections cases, uh, your father is an idiot. So you think your father is an idiot, and your father is an idiot, but this is not all. If you observe this same person actually interacting with his father you will see a totally different attitude of fear respect even love even love whatever you know that's the paradox you may know how the truth is the truth is like that but the illusion is in what you are doing and again at this level ideology interests me now when you said can we uh, can we change it I think uh, I'm not also, I'm not a pessimist here. I'm not this kind of a leftist paranoiac in the sense of, you know, the system is perfected, perfected, every transgression is already included and so on. That was my whole point, for example, of that hamster point. No, when a guy is cynical, don't push him into, are you really cynical? No, no, no. Ask about his, uh, don't try to convince him with how things truly are. He will accept that, hit him at his hamster point, no? Or, uh, or for example, another example of how, this is why I claim when, the, when you treat ideology as a discourse with a pretension at truth and you combat it at that level, you lose. My eternal example, sorry if my, I repeat myself, let's say we are in Germany in 37. I am I will be the bad guy. I'm an anti-Semitic Nazi. You are a good liberal, whatever, leftist, no? And you try to convince me that I am wrong in my anti-Semitism. Let's say you, are, you choose the path of convincing me, look back, these are prejudices that you say about Jews. Jews are not really like that. Like measuring the truth value of my statements about Jews. The moment you do this, you've already sold your soul to the devil. You totally miss the point. Because let's imagine such a conversation. The result can only be, could only have been somewhere in between. You will have to concede that all Jews are not good. Of course they are not, my God, no. You will, and when, for example, when the Nazis claimed Jews are exploiting us. Well, some Jews were rich, so in a totally formal sense, they were exploiting Germans. Jews were seducing German girls. Well, I hope they were, I hope they had good time, you know what I mean, like, but you see my point, the true problem is not are what is, what Nazis are saying about the Jews, true or not. Ideology is not decided at this level, so that if it's not true, but just prejudices its ideology. I will go now, up to the end, although this is not the case here obviously, even if, but it's not, even if most of what Nazis were telling about the Jews were to be true, antisemitism would still have been a reprehensible ideology. Because what makes it an ideology is not its truth value or not. It's why the Nazis, in order to sustain their Entire vision needed a figure like a Jew. You know, it's the same like Lacan has this wonderful, I'm sorry, it's male chauvinist, but nonetheless example where he says, if a husband is pathologically jealous, suspecting that his wife is sleeping around with multitudes in the negri sense, multitudes of men. And if, even if all his suspicions are true, the wife is really doing this, his jealousy is still a pathology. Because... The point, the pathology of jealousy is not decided at the level, is it true or not. But where does does his fixation on jealousy come from? Why does he need the form of jealousy to sustain his identity, the identity of his self? No? At this level, I think that we can fight ideology because, again, breaking out of ideology is not this question of aren't we all caught in some ideologies? Can we break out into a totally objective view of how things really are? The opposite of ideology is not how things really are. Okay, I don't have time to go on, but along these lines, I would have, you know. To repeat a bad joke, I hope you will like it, that I often use. You know, I'm old enough to know in the 70s, 80s, when there was still Marxism, there was a certain type of the title of the books fashionable. Like Marxism was already in crisis. So when you wrote a book on aesthetics, it was considered too self-assertive to to name the book directly, "Theory of Ideology." It was something like elements for a future theory of ideology. Towards, just um, to signal, there is crisis. We are not there. Then the 90s and early 21st century was the postmodern age, more the 90s, where already late 80s, basically, where I hope you noticed in humanities, especially cultural studies, the formula was. No longer this prolegomena for elements, for towards and so on, but a simple new formula dominated. Poetic title, explanatory subtitle, like you know. Hit me harder, darling, the motive of feminine masochism in 19th century poetry, and so on, you know. And uh, so, okay, the point of my joke, I hope, is clear. I didn't answer you, I gave you a kind of a... 1980s, this skeptical Marxist, you know, prolegomena for a future answer to your question, but I hope I did some of
2: them. Hello. Uh, you were talking earlier on about the marketization of uh, university education. Um, I was wondering, do you think. I, ironically,
1: that was irony. Sorry. I call democratization what is going now here?
2: Marketization.
1: Market, uh, marketization, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, I was just wondering, do you think we should go back to a period like in the 19th century where Yes. It Everyone hurts. studied the humanities, philosophy, the classics.
1: Uh, not quite, but I, no. But why? Why do you put it in these terms, as if the only choice is nineteenth century or where it is moving now? I think, in very simple terms, that for example, the system that we had in the seventies and eighties—I am not saying it was good—it's definitely better than what is coming now. I mean, I I at least think this because, and this is not any kind of hardline Marxism, quite the opposite. I'm here very naively pro-intellectual. I think that even in hard sciences, practically no great inventions were produced in this plan's way, let's train the the experts. From Einstein onwards, all really great where what we call in rational cho- what they call, I don't pretend to be one of them, although I like them, in rational choice theory, necessary by, or byproducts, you know, like, or to put it in popular military terms, collateral damage, you know, like you research something and quite by chance, oh my God, you stumble upon something else. And I think don't underestimate how even in the top modern science, and even where it may appear that everything has to be done in a large planned way, like all those certain laboratories, particle accelerators, and so on and so on. So uh, uh, this is my problem. You, I'm not saying most of us should study or like at that point in Oxford, I think, I read somewhere that till the early 20th century or wrote even that if, For students of Cambridge and Oxford, their point of honor was that even privately they were speaking Latin to each other. No, I'm not saying we should move to that. All I'm saying is that we need this kind of a open space of apparently useless. You have to have a free space. Or to give you another example of the same logic, the reason I don't like Amazon.com is that this is like this new expert education. You buy there mostly only books you already in advance want to buy. Like you, but I cannot even imagine such a great number of books that really meant a lot to me. I stumbled upon them in a much more open, contingent way, you know, like I was looking what I wanted to check up, then I looked around a little bit, and so on and so on. This is also, for example, for me, but I'm not a conservative here, but nonetheless, the horror of checking news on Yahoo, or I don't know where, uh, the digital news, because there, again, you have to make choices in the sense that you are interested in this topic. You, I like precisely the newspaper experience where You get what you want, but also many things that you don't want. And precisely by this totally contingent jumping up and down, you usually discover the most precious thing and so on. I really am worried here. No wonder that, isn't this sad? To give you a concrete example, I think we will be lagging soon behind United States here. Don't underestimate the United States. They have there a group, which I don't like very much, but they're nonetheless not idiots, the so-called Pittsburgh Hegelians. Robert Brandon, John McDowell, and so on. And one of the students there told me that already around half of their students are Germans. You know what this means? You know where we are? I mean, I don't mean this cynically, it's great for the United, but nonetheless that if a German student, German, today wants to understand Hegel, the best of them go to United States to do it. That's that's the result of it. So again, I'm not making here any big ultra Marxist point or whatever, I'm just claiming that, and this is for me precisely the big lesson of Stalinism, that over-specialization, precisely engenders its opposite. It's not productive. Now, my God, I will even be pro-capitalist. I will say that the advantage of capitalism was precisely its, you know, apparently irrational expenditures and so on and so on. The deepest insight into Stalinism for me, one of the, is that you, we should totally drop these liberal cliches that in Stalinism we will all turn into automatic like puppet subject every free thought was squashed everything was planned total stupidity for if you read or talk with old people who lived in soviet union or read really good books on stalinism you will discover that beneath the surface of total control and planning stalinist soviet union was much more chaotic and disorganized than a western liberal democracy Nothing functioned. So you had all the time to behave as an extreme egotist to improvise all the time and so on and so on. So it's just common sense that I was, I was telling you there.
0: Well, I think on that note, um, we'll say thank you very much, Slavoj, for an absolutely fascinating and brilliant talk. I am
1: grateful to you and uh, sincerely, Sincerely, I want to apologize because I couldn't present you any really radically new stuff, but if you really like my work, you will like the reason because I'm totally in a kind of a half-based uh, drug state because for the last year, apart from some talk here and there, I was doing a mega book on Hegel I'm now finishing it, just correcting 800 pages on Hegel. This will be my last. <laughs> totally useless. Deserves no deserves use a round for, of applause for that. <laughs> that <was hilarious. laughs> Thanks very much. I appreciate. it.:
0: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at IntelligenceSquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.